podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of progress. This is the final episode of Dementia Decoded, a special five-part series presented by the Academy's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative with the generous support of the Dana Foundation. Episode five, Moving Forward. To begin the last episode in this series, let's go back for a moment to where we began the first one. To a time a little more than 100 years ago, when medical science was very different than it is now. Among the brand new ideas that were kicking around at the time was the thought that what had been regarded as purely mental disorders, diseases of the mind or perhaps the spirit, both of which were thought to be separate things from the body, might in fact be connected to physical conditions in the brain. A huge leap forward was made in this understanding when a German doctor named Alois Alzheimer discovered that the progressive dementia he had observed in one of his patients corresponded with particular abnormal deposits of material in her brain. This was a big moment in the history of neurology. But interestingly, it was more or less the last big breakthrough in our understanding of the disease that was named for Dr. Alzheimer for a surprisingly long time. Here's Dr. Jason Karlowish, professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And that happened in 1907, and then nothing happened. And that's very interesting that nothing really happened until the mid to late 20th century. So almost 50, 60 years of silence passed uh, where Alzheimer's disease sort of disappeared or faded into its kind of a, 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 a forgetting it itself was forgotten. Why that's the case, I think, is, is probably the result of a series of events. Not any one event, I think, explain it. Things picked up again towards the end of the 20th century, when new advances in our understanding of genetics pointed towards a new understanding of Alzheimer's disease, and many hoped toward a cure. But as we heard in earlier episodes, while this genetic push has given us a deep understanding of the cause of certain early-onset forms of the disease, the causes of the vast majority of Alzheimer's cases remain obscure. There is right now, though, in the second decade of the 21st century, a second big swell of interest in research about dementia, for obvious reasons. The biggest risk factor for neurodegenerative disease is age. And there are far and away more elderly people in the world right now than there have ever been. And so a disease that was a curiosity when it was first discovered is now an epidemic. Here's a hair-raising statistic. In 2013, Medicare and Medicaid paid $142 billion for the care of people with dementia. In that year, our total national budget deficit was $680 billion. That means that the amount paid toward the treatment and care of people with dementia from just two specific government programs represented 21% of our total national budget deficit for that year. 21%. Not surprisingly, numbers like that are starting to get people's attention, particularly because they're only going to get worse. Here's Dr. Maria Carrillo, Chief Science Officer for the Alzheimer's Association. The current, you know, more than 5 million Americans that are living with Alzheimer's disease today are going to actually increase um, by 40% uh, by 2025, and that'll reach 7.1 million. And people are feeling this urgency. 
There's a groundswell right now in international momentum to find new solutions for Alzheimer's and other kinds of neurodegenerative dementia. There's a sense all across the field among researchers, policymakers, clinicians, and people in care that now is the time when real progress can finally be made. We are at the cusp right now where we can turn this tide around and say, you know, if we hadn't acted then, where would we be today, right? Because this is our best opportunity uh, to be able to actually address the challenge of Alzheimer's disease and be able to turn around this Titanic. One of the places this new energy is definitely being felt is in research. While, as we've heard, there is a real lack of effective medical treatments for Alzheimer's, there's a feeling in the field right now that we're closer than we've ever been. Our base of knowledge is greater, and there are more and better studies into promising treatments being done now than ever before. Here's Dr. Richard Isaacson, director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medical Center. The, the vaccine approaches, the, the prevention trials ongoing now, I mean, this is some exciting stuff. I mean, you know, we're, we're creeping along making progress in Alzheimer's disease, but wow, 2013, 2014 were just like amazing years to set the groundwork. And I think 2015 and beyond are going to be much, much more exciting and, 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 and many more developments. The, 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 the basis has, has, been, has been laid. There are so many interesting and exciting things happening in Alzheimer's research right now that we could do 10 more episodes like this and not cover them all. I'd like to highlight a handful, though, that show something of the scope of different approaches that are being taken. As we looked at in some detail in the second episode of this series, for many years, the dominant theory about Alzheimer's has been that one of the two kinds of deposits that Alzheimer discovered a protein called beta amyloid, which forms thick plaques between neurons in the brain of someone with the disease, is the prime driver, the thing that initiates all the other symptoms. And we looked in that episode at several studies and clinical trials that are aimed at preventing amyloid buildup by means of an antibody, a kind of vaccine. There are other studies beginning now, though, to look at different kinds of drug mechanisms that might be even more effective in treating amyloid buildup. Here's Dr. Risa Sperling, director of the Center for Alzheimer's Disease Treatment and Research at Massachusetts General Hospital and professor of neurology at Harvard. So I can say that we are already starting to plan what we're calling the A5 study, which is another anti-amyloid treatment. And this is different than an antibody study. This um, new study will be looking at ways to stop the buildup of the amyloid protein altogether using what's called a beta-secretase inhibitor. They're very potent drugs, and they can decrease the production of the amyloid beta peptide, this piece of the amyloid protein that we know uh, forms plaques, very robustly, meaning they can decrease it down to 90%. And so that will be a pill form and really will try to prevent the um, nerve cells from making the amyloid protein itself that eventually um, clumps into these plaques. It may be ultimately that these approaches are complementary, that you'd want both a beta-secretase inhibitor, which is probably more like a statin, and a, an antibody to help clear the amyloid that's already in the brain together as a one-two punch to try to knock down amyloid. Almost everyone in the field, though, including Dr. Sperling, thinks that we need also to be looking beyond the amyloid hypothesis, exploring other biological mechanisms that might turn out to be just as important, especially as more and more researchers have started to feel that the ultimate solution is going to lie in a combination therapy, 
a cocktail of different drugs with different effects rather than a single actor. Here's Dr. Carrillo again. What we're really thinking is that, um, you know, amyloid could be one of the potential avenues. Um, will it be the cure-all? Um, more than likely not, um, but it, it could be a, a part of the solution. It could be one of those strategic approaches. One of these other approaches might be a different kind of antibody, one that directly targets the other of Dr. Alzheimer's unnatural buildups. The tangles made of a protein called tau that conglomerate inside diseased brain cells. This is an approach that was thought of as, frankly, kind of crazy, because the brain's natural defense systems work pretty hard to keep things from infiltrating neurons, even if they are sick. But recent experiments in mice have been surprisingly promising. Here's Dr. Peter Davies, scientific director of the Center for Research on Alzheimer's Disease at the North Shore Long Island Jewish Hospital's Feinstein Institute. Tangles form inside neurons. There's my first hurdle. How do I get antibody across the blood-brain barrier into the brain? And then how do I get it, once it's in the brain, into neurons to prevent tangle formation or to interfere with tangle formation? Very, I mean, crazy idea to think that one could do that. Um, but... You know, sometimes if you try crazy experiments, you get surprising results. Um, and that's exactly what happened in this case. When the experiments were tried, um, we see quite significant reduction in the rate of development of tangles um, when we treat with some anti-tangle antibodies. So... I mean, the question of how it works is a separate one, but at least in preliminary pilot, however you want to call these experiments, um, it actually does seem to work. Keep in mind, this is preliminary success in controlled animal models, which can be very, very different from success in actual human brains. But still, it's an exciting new approach. Another interesting approach is coming from taking the story of the disease and turning it around. Rather than looking at why excesses of amyloid and tau are forming, let's instead look at why they're not being cleared away. There are dedicated mechanisms in your cells for cleaning up excess materials and disposing of them. So why aren't they taking care of this problem? Here's Dr. Ken Kosick, professor of neuroscience at the University of California, Santa Barbara. It's a fascinating question to think why the cell's trash is not being emptied. Um, cells have to take care of their waste, and there is a mechanism to do that. It's called protein degradation, and it's been intensively studied. We know a lot about it. And we also know that tau in these tangles is earmarked for the trash can because it's, it's got a marker on it that says, hey, I want to go to the trash can. But for some reason, it's not getting there. Or if it's getting there, it's not being degraded in the right way to get rid of it. So it's getting stuck somewhere in the cell before the cell can actually dispose of it. The cell's waste removal is handled by organelles called lysosomes, little critters that float around inside the cell, breaking down and throwing out things the cell doesn't need. So maybe Alzheimer's has something to do, at least partially, with malfunction of the lysosomes. Here's Dr. Sperling again. I think that 
the ability to clear proteins, lysosomal systems, endosomal systems, um, probably do play a role. And there's actually a lot of really interesting work on this at the basic science level and work on retromeres and uh, other pathways that may be really important. It is unlikely that just the a change in lysosomal uh, um, storage or breakdown is responsible for all of Alzheimer's disease. But it could be that in the setting of um, amyloid accumulation and a problem in the systems, the cellular systems that are meant to clear these proteins, that is what happens in aging and why age is the greatest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. If you're interested, you can hear a lot more about lysosomes in an episode of this podcast dealing with diseases we know are due to lysosomal dysfunction, which aired right before this series began. Lysosomes aren't the only organelles in your cell that might have something to do with Alzheimer's, though. There's another theory that mitochondria also might be involved. They're the parts of your cell that are responsible for energy production. They literally burn nutrients like sugar and fat to provide the cell with the power it needs to function. Here's Dr. Tetsuyuki Maruyama, Senior Vice President and General Manager of the Research Division of Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Neurons are very high energy users, uh, and we don't make new ones or a significant number of new ones in our adult life. And so some hypotheses about, well, if you just lost a little bit of battery power from neurons, could that start to lead uh, to a decline that would uh, end in dementia? Uh, so mitochondria, for instance, which are, are the, the, the batteries, if you will, uh, of neurons, are themselves very susceptible to the kinds of stresses like um, reactive oxygen species that can come from a long history of overwork. We are in the clinic right now with a phase three trial that is based on the mitochondrial energetics uh, hypothesis. A truly so crazy it just might work idea is coming from people trying to answer one of the fundamental questions we still don't know about the basic physiology of Alzheimer's. Buildup of abnormal amounts of amyloid is a clear hallmark of the disease. But what about normal amounts? Healthy brains make amyloid too, and we don't know why, what it's for when it's produced in healthy amounts. As we heard in episode one, there's one idea that it has something to do with normal memory function. But there's also another that's being explored, which is that it might have a function in the brain's immune system. Specifically, something to do with fighting common and relatively benign viral and fungal infections. Things like herpes and yeast infections. Here's Dr. Rudolf Tanzi, Director of the Aging and Genetics Research Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital and Endowed Chair in Neurology at Harvard. My lab back in 2010 uh, had a paper that amyloid beta protein is a very potent antimicrobial peptide. So this is the brainchild of Rob Moyer in my, in my, uh, in my group, showing that if you test amyloid beta protein against known antimicrobial peptides that kill bacteria and viruses, that amyloid beta protein is as good as any, any one of them. And in the brain, this begs the question, is, is this what it's trying to do? Is it trying to protect against viruses or bacteria or, or fungus or all of the above? And so in the first paper we published, we just showed, yes, it does have the properties of an antimicrobial peptide. But since then, 
uh, we've now, and others have shown, that amyloid beta protein is very effective at trapping herpes virus, uh, even trapping yeast like candida, so that they can't attack neurons. That A beta fibrils and amyloid is forming a trap, like a net of fibrils that trap viruses, trap bugs, trap viruses from attacking cells. And so just an out-of-the-box idea that maybe amyloid is being made as part of the innate immune system. And it's uh, a case of antagonistic pleiotropy, where having amyloid in the beginning is good. It's helping to, you know, fight chronic infections or, or fight herpes virus. But then as you accumulate too much, it turns against you by inducing tangles and inflammation and disease. And now that we're living this long, um, that matters, you know, but back when we only lived till 30 years old, having some amyloid and inflammation around was helpful because uh, you didn't live long enough to suffer from the consequences of it. So just an idea going forward. A really interesting implication of this idea is that by preventing these really common microbial infections, you could dramatically reduce someone's risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Sounds wacky, but who knows? The point is that we probably need all of these approaches, and more, if we're going to come to the kind of holistic understanding of Alzheimer's that would really lead to a cure. Here's Dr. Carrillo. In some people, amyloid might be the first occurrence, but in others it could be tau, and in others it could be inflammation um, due to a traumatic brain injury, in others it could be the traumatic brain injury itself. And so we need to really explore all of these um, you know, avenues in order to find the right approach, the right combination, at the right time point. And so I don't really think it's an either or, I think it's all and. Something that all these innovative research approaches share though, as well as all the innovative approaches to care for people with Alzheimer's that we heard about in the last episode, is that they need to be funded. And this is something that has proved very challenging. Here's Dr. Davies putting it as succinctly as possible. The problem in Alzheimer's disease is not bright ideas. I mean, the problem in Alzheimer's disease is money. And he's absolutely right. The truth is that Alzheimer's disease research is funded much, much less than research into other diseases that affect a similar number of people. For an example, let's just look at government funding, which is by far the largest source of money for basic research. In 2013, the National Institute of Health, which is the U.S. government's largest distributor of money for medical research, spent $504 million on Alzheimer's disease research. That sounds like a lot of money, until you realize that their budget for cancer research was more than $5 billion. And it shows in medical progress. In 2013, 12 new medications to treat cancer were released in the U.S. New Alzheimer's drugs? Zero. In 2012, 11 new cancer drugs. New Alzheimer's drugs? Also zero. In fact, the last time a new drug was approved by the FDA for use with Alzheimer's patients was in 2003. Why? Dr. Andrew Lowe is a well-known economist and a professor of finance at MIT. He was curious about this discrepancy too, and spoke about it at an event about innovations in funding for Alzheimer's disease held at the Academy on December 11th, 2014. Here he is from the podium. So as an economist, obviously, I'm looking to understand the motivation for this kind of situation. Is there a breakdown, a market failure, lack of incentives? What's going on? 
is Alzheimer's a rare disease? Maybe it doesn't affect that many people. We don't care about it. Well, we know that there are five million patients in America that suffer from Alzheimer's. That's not the case. Clearly, it's not the burden of disease that's the issue. Maybe, um, maybe there are just more oncologists than neurologists. In fact, that's not true. There's 13,000 oncologists and 16,000 neurologists. Maybe cancer biology is easier than uh, you know, Alzheimer's biology. Doesn't seem like that's the case. So do we know more about cancer than we do about Alzheimer's? Yeah, we do. But why? Do we, uh, do we have more targets in cancer than Alzheimer's? Yeah. But why? Uh, is there more basic research in cancer than in Alzheimer's? Yeah. But why? And is there more pharma R&D in cancer than in Alzheimer's? Absolutely. But again, as an economist, I want to know why. Why is that the case? And my conjecture is that it's because of risk and uncertainty. And it's true that the inherent difficulties and financial risks associated with research into conditions of the central nervous system, sometimes called CNS diseases, have made them historically less attractive to the pharma industry. Also from that event, here's Dr. Claire Stroud from the Institute of Medicine, the health division of the National Academy of Sciences. It's well known in the CNS drug development that it, it can be more risky with lower probability of success, higher program costs, and that the clinical development process can be longer and also the regulatory agency review times can be longer. And these longer times are dri driven by the complexity of the clinical si uh, situation of nervous system disorders. And there are other purely financial problems too, one of which has to do with patent law. The patent is filed early in the drug discovery process, so um, before the clinical development occurs and before the regulatory reviews. The clock starts ticking when the patent is filed, and so if you take longer through the clinical development and regulatory processes, then you're eating into your um, time where you have market exclusivity um, and you get a shorter time of market protection before the generics enter, enter the market. Here's what that means. Most people in the field think that the most promising Alzheimer's drugs currently in development are ones that would need to be administered really early in its progression, maybe 15 or even 20 years before symptoms develop. This means that the only way that they can be tested is to administer the drugs in a trial and then wait 20 years and see what happens. This makes for a really long and therefore really expensive study. But also, the way patent law is written at the moment, it's possible that your patent on this new medication will have expired before the study is completed, let alone the new drug brought to market. This is just one of many specific regulatory issues that make developing these drugs a serious financial risk. Here's Dr. Lowe again. Why we have not seen a new Alzheimer's drug in the last 10 years. It's not because people are stupid. It's not because they're lazy. It's because it just doesn't pay. People want return. They don't want risk. That is a natural inclination that all of us have. And if that's the case, if we all behave that way across all the different assets, Alzheimer's therapeutics are not going to be able to get the resources that it needs unless we do something to change that risk-reward trade-off. Addressing some of the obstacles to the development of new Alzheimer's drugs, the expense of clinical trials and the difficulties of dealing with existing regulations, was a central topic of conversation at a series of dementia legacy events 
attended by leaders of the U.S., the U.K., Japan, Germany, and the rest of the world's largest economies. The most recent of these was held in Japan in November of 2014. Here's George Vredenberg, chairman and co-founder of Us Against Alzheimer's and convener of the global CEO initiative on Alzheimer's disease. A lot of the themes that came out of the November summit in terms of the priorities, which were really four, would do something about the clinical trial system because it's too costly, too risky, and too expensive to get a drug to market. Do something about the regulatory scheme because it's set up to evaluate drugs uh, for treating people with symptoms, and we need a regulatory system that deals with people who are on the way to symptoms. Uh, and as we look back 13 months later, we have a clinical trial restructuring effort uh, to enhance, grow, uh, and expand the clinical trial system to make it global, seamless across North America, Europe, and Asia, so that exactly the same patients are in exactly the right trials at exactly the right time with common protocols and common practices and across trial sites. That is underway. The regulatory system, we've now got uh, either discussion papers or draft guidance from the major regulatory regimes uh, about how to change the paradigm and the regulatory paradigm. Uh, that's on a path now over the next year to two to get ourselves into a place where we can do prevention as well as treatment. This meeting and other high-level global initiatives seem to have inspired some real progress. Despite the risks, many pharmaceutical companies are now investing in drug development for Alzheimer's disease. J&J has stepped up mightily. Lilly has stepped up mightily. Uh, Novartis is deeply investing in the business now. Biogenetic recently um, announced its deeper commitment to this space, and its stock went up. You know, two or three years ago, if somebody announced they were getting to the Alzheimer's space, their stock would have plummeted. Uh, but now uh, you can see at least the glimmerings, the perception that this is a space to invest in. So we've got, I think, some drugs in the late stage pipeline. I think one of those may prove modestly effective. Uh, and when that is, gets through the FDA, I think you're going to begin to see a real momentum towards public investment, uh, public capital markets investment in this space. Uh, but we got to get there. And there are many people who think that despite all this new momentum in the private sector, the only way we're really going to get there is through government funding. That's because a primary need at the moment is for basic research. We need to understand more about the fundamental physiology of the brain before we can really guess which one of those innovative ideas we heard about at the beginning of the show is the most promising, or if the real promise lies somewhere else. Here's Dr. Maruyama. There are still many, many layers of understanding, even about behavior, um, that we don't fully have yet. And relating that to brain function as well um, is going to be equally challenging. It's why I think that it's very important that we continue um, to fund and support basic science in understanding the brain. Uh, we need urgently to find a medical solution to dementias. Um, and we should use as much as possible the information that we have, but finding the very best way um, to treat or cure dementias uh, still is going to require, I think, a better understanding of the brain. And unfortunately, it's really hard to get the pharmaceuticals industry to fund basic research. And it makes sense that that's the case. Pharma companies don't have unlimited R&D budgets. 
And so they need to make investments in research that stand the best chance of producing a viable drug that they can then sell. Otherwise, they go out of business. Basic research is a shot-in-the-dark proposition, and so it's a bad risk from a financial standpoint. Here's Dr. Lowe. When I say invest in basic science, I use the word in quotes. The reason it's in quotes is that there is no rate of return when you invest in basic science. It's not an investment. Uh, or rather, it's an investment in reducing uncertainty, not in risk. You can't quantify what the rate of return is, and so that's why the private sector is not going to do it. Which leaves government. But governments also want to see return on investment, particularly in times when conservative economic principles are politically popular. And that's probably why Alzheimer's research funding from the government is so disproportionately low as compared to other diseases. They're looking at the same risk analysis as the private sector. So what's the solution? Ironically, the way forward might come from that staggering cost of care for people with the disease and the projections that show it's only going to rise. If governments decide that an investment now in basic research is going to significantly reduce the cost of care for sick people later, the cost-benefit of investing in it becomes much more attractive. Here's Dr. Lowe again. What kind of rate of return would we, the taxpayers, earn on that? And that's the simulation we've done. We use the Alzheimer's Association numbers uh, based upon the Lewin Group's analysis of what the impact would be for delayed onset. Uh, and we said the investment is $38.4 billion. The rate of return is the cost savings based upon a delayed onset scenario. What kind of rate of return would we expect as a taxpayer? Over a 10-year horizon, basically you break even. Over a 20-year horizon, the rate of return to taxpayers is 10%. And over a 30-year horizon, that rate of return is 16%. This is a great deal if you are a long-term investor. And of course, the US government is about the longest-term investor there exists on the planet. So it suggests that there's a, an incredible possibility for getting government involved, it, not, not just for charity, but really as an investment uh, in reducing its own burden. It's worth pausing for a moment on the fact that Dr. Lowe's projections for turning Alzheimer's research into a fiscally sound long-term investment require an outlay of $38.4 billion. And that really is a lot of money, 60 times what we're currently spending annually. It's maybe not an impossible amount of money, though. It's the kind of price tag that's well within the reach of something like a national bond issue, if it could be shown that it's really as sound an investment as Dr. Lowe thinks it is. The California Public Employee Retirement System, they were investing $284 billion, and the rate of return that CalPERS is looking for is not 20 or 30 percent. Their target return was 8 percent, it's just gone down to 7.5. Issuing debt could actually transform the space if you have the proper incentives, the proper structure, and if government is involved. And for the first time, there's real momentum among governments and multinational organizations around the world to start looking at big ideas like that. Meetings are being held, national strategies formed, and action plans made. Here's Phil Hope, a former member of the British Parliament who's now with the Policy Advocacy Group Improving Care, 
followed by Micah Stenel, Senior Director for Strategic Projects and Transformational Leadership at Johnson & Johnson. We've seen not only the World Health Organization, but the United Nations and the G8 countries come together uh, to really say this is a global challenge. Uh, there needs to be uh, action across the globe, um, recognizing the huge personal uh, health cost and um, uh, social cost of, of the disease and its impact on individuals and their families, but of course also recognizing the huge economic impact um, of, uh, of dementia upon uh, individuals and their families uh, and also on health and social care systems. And if we don't address it now, uh, we are storing up a massive problem for the future. 16 countries so far have really um, embraced uh, a, a governmental um, Alzheimer's plan, and more and more countries are signing up. So that's a really, really good sign where the government and the health ministers of each country are actually saying we have to put in an official plan in place. There's momentum, too, to find new ways for all the interested parties, academia, government, and the private sector, to find new ways to work together. What's happening over here might have an impact over there. There's a halo effect. And if we all move in the right direction and the same direction, then if I look at just my slice of the pie, it, it might look devastating. But if I look at everything else that's going on, if you put the pieces together, it can actually work as a catalyst where one plus one is three or four, hopefully. Okay. So I think that's really important. There's global reach and it's very multifaceted. And so despite all these challenges, scientific challenges, funding challenges, policy challenges. The overall mood in the field right now is one of cautious optimism. For the first time, people think they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Here's Mr. Hope again. I am optimistic that we have the solutions in our grasp to preventing dementia, uh, 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 people developing dementia, if we can really uh, get good evidence base and then roll out programs of interventions that uh, reduce the risk factors associated with dementia. I think that's a, uh, I'm optimistic that if we grasp that opportunity, we can make a real difference. I'm optimistic that we can improve the quality of care for people who have dementia through better integration of all the various services um, that, that will improve their, their living with that dementia well and reduce costs to the system so that we have money to cope with growing demand. Um, uh, I, I believe we can give better support for caregivers and that will make a big difference. My pessimism around finding a cure is because we have been massively underfunding research to date into this particular condition. I think we've now recognized that problem. Things are starting to happen in that space, but it's going to require a step change in investment, I think, um, if we're going to find the drugs that are going to cure what is a complicated um, um, area of disease. Here's Dr. Scott Small, professor of neurology and director of the Taub Institute for Research on Alzheimer's Disease and the Aging Brain at Columbia University. You know, when I first started uh, 15 years ago, I was frankly pessimistic. Despite the Soviet five-year promises, we'll find a cure in five years. That, that's what was told when I started uh, in, in the late 1990s. In five years from now, we'll have a drug for Alzheimer's disease. That's not the way drug discovery works. That's not the way um, clinical neuroscience works. The question is, are you in the right playing field? If you're in the right playing field, you can intuitively understand that we'll hit that home run. Until 
five years ago, we were in the wrong playing field. And so the reason why I've shifted from abject pessimism to cautious optimism is because we now have gained, the field at large, has have gained enough insight into the basic pathophysiological mechanisms. We now have identified them, and there are three or four of them. And drugs are being developed against those that I think that we will have um, an effective intervention soon. Whether it's a month or 10 years, it's hard to say, but it's going to happen in our lifetime. And here's Dr. Kosick. I'm very confident we'll find an effective treatment. I mean, this, this disease is caused by something uh, that um, and biology uh, we see over and over again is something that we can modify, we can intervene on. Uh, some cancers can already be cured. Um, uh, AIDS can be treated. There's no doubt in my mind that we can find something that will really improve people's chances of beating Alzheimer's disease. Where that's going to emerge, this is the wonderful thing about science. Where that's going to emerge is almost certainly going to be a surprise. If people are open-minded about the science and they look broadly at what's going on at all these different levels, just, just as we talked about, how tau is being made and how it's being disposed, and what are the other molecules that are interacting, and how are the genes making it being regulated. If we take a really open-minded view of the basic science, to me that's the answer. That's, the, that's where the answer lies. Thanks so much for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was presented by the Academy's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative and made possible by the generous support of the Dana Foundation. It was produced by your host, David Hoffman, scientific oversight by Dr. Cynthia Duggan. Special thanks to the experts who appeared in this episode, Dr. Jason Karlowish of the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Maria Carrillo of the Alzheimer's Association, Dr. Richard Isaacson of Weill Cornell Medical Center, Drs. Reese Sperling and Rudolf Tanzi of Harvard University, Dr. Ken Kosick of the University of California, Santa Barbara, Drs. Richard Mayu and Scott Small of Columbia University, Dr. Peter Davies of the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research, Dr. Tetsuyuki Maruyama of Takeda Pharmaceuticals, Dr. Andrew Lowe of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Dr. Claire Stroud of the Institute of Medicine, George Vradenberg of Us Against Alzheimer's, Phil Hope of Improving Care, and Micah Stenel of Johnson & Johnson. For more information about the New York Academy of Sciences Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative, including upcoming events, publications, and challenge grants, please visit www.nyas.org slash whatwedo slash Alzheimer's.